Father, we are so blessed to be your church, your bride. You created us for your good pleasure. You called us out of darkness into marvelous light. Through the death, burial, and resurrection of your Son, Jesus Christ, you conquered death for us to bring us into eternal life. You created intimacy, the youth of fellowship, prayer, and your word. Your word tells who you are and who we are in you. We give you praise, thanks, and honor because you are the God of truth. You are faithful and you offer us forgiveness through the precious, redemptive blood of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Father, you give us everything, our lives, your love, your saving grace, an unstoppable church, dedicated brothers and sisters who are growing. Last but certainly not least, thank you for Pastor Adam, Meg, the leadership team, and every member vital to the life of the church. Father, give Adam the word to speak and open our hearts to hear your word and the strength to turn them into actions. Amen. Amen. All right, go ahead and have a seat. And kids, Journey Kids, you're dismissed. You know where to go. Well, good morning again. We're going to be in a couple different passages this morning, but the first place we're going to go is 1 Corinthians 15. So if you have your Bible, I'd invite you to turn to 1 Corinthians 15. If you don't have a Bible and you'd like one, there's one in the seat back in front of you or at least close by to where you're sitting, and you're welcome to have that one. You're welcome to keep it, take it, give it to somebody. We'd love to see God's words in, in as many hands as possible. It was eight years ago today. Eight years ago today that uh, in a freezing rain in western PA we packed up our U-Haul and Meg and my mom and the kids all but Isaiah and Josie wasn't even a, a thought at that time God knew she was coming but we sure didn't and uh, and so we loaded up everything and we moved across the state and uh, moved to Hatboro we didn't know exactly what it would look like but we knew one thing we knew was that God had so blatantly opened so many doors that it was undeniable that this is exactly where we were supposed to be. Now, if you've been around me for any amount of time, you know that there's no shortage of words for me. I can tell a story that is a three-minute story, and I can turn it into a 30-minute epic tale, uh, <laughs> leaving out no detail. So if you'd like to hear the story of how we knew beyond the shadow of a doubt that this is where God had us, I would be glad to tell it because it celebrates the Lord. Um, but I'm not going to do that this morning. What we're experiencing now as Journey Church wasn't what it was that day. A lot of the pieces were here. Um, and... Uh, there, there needed, we needed to collectively meet with the Lord and ask Him to help us in our labor that we would navigate what He wanted this to look like. You know, sometimes leading a church, in leading a church, there can be a propensity to come up with creative ideas and strategies to make it go. And those aren't in and of themselves bad, but what we really wanted to do was just meet with the Lord and see what He wanted this to look like. I think there was just this understanding on the part of me. I was coming out of 10 years of youth and young adult ministry, so leading a church was something I had never done. Not at this level. And in an area where I still needed GPS to find my way to the grocery store, 
I knew I had zero creativity, zero leadership, zero percent to offer anyone that chose to come and make this their church in and of myself. So I would say God put me at a zero balance and it was a really, really good thing. It was a really good thing for me. So we just really wanted that. So what God revealed to us, the people that were helping me lead and walking alongside me, uh, what God revealed to us throughout that time is that what we want is, is, is what we want to talk about today. Because we understand who we are today to really understand who we are today and who we feel He's leading us to be moving forward, it's important to take a look back to see how some of it got started. For that to make sense, look at 1 Corinthians 15. We're going to start at verse 3. I'm going to read verses 3 through 11. This is Paul talking here. I want you to pay attention to what Paul says. Listen to the wording. It's rich. Listen to what it says here. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, starting at verse 3, for, I'm going to use my new Bible here, for I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according, in accordance with the Scriptures, that He was buried, that He was raised on the third day in accordance with with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, or Peter, then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive. Paul's saying this is not necessarily true today, (laughs) though some have fallen asleep, some have passed. Then he appeared to James, verse 7, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And His grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preach, and so you believed. Now, I could spend 40 minutes just in that passage, and I'm going to. No, I'm not. I'm just kidding. (laughs) I I want you to catch something that he says at the very beginning of this. For I delivered to you as of, can you say it out loud with me, those two words next. For I delivered to you as of first importance. I delivered to you as of First importance, what I also received. And then he tells us the gospel. That Jesus died for our sins, what? In accordance with the scriptures. That he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with with the scriptures first importance i have nothing to tell you today if we don't talk about of the matters of first importance the gospel not the vision not the pastor not the building not the name the gospel 
the good news that Jesus Christ saw us in our plight of sin and in His divine grace was sent to live a perfect life amongst sinners with the opportunity to sin and chose it not and died taking upon Him all of my sin and yours once and for all. But that wasn't the end because breath filled his lungs three days later and my Jesus came back from the grave and then he went on a victory walk for 40 days, a little victory lap where people saw him alive and they saw the scars and they saw his life and then they went and told that story. But Paul says something else interesting. He says a lot of interesting things here. But one of the things that he says here to get us started He says in verse 10, but by the grace of God, I am what I am. I just talked to my sons about this this week. Something I learned, something I'm learning, something I want to continue to learn is I shouldn't seek from people what I can only get from God. My identity is not shaped by what your opinion of me is. And yours isn't of mine or anyone else for that matter. No, Paul says, I'm the least of the apostles because I actually killed Christians. I persecuted the church of God. I did that. I'm the least worthy of these guys. But by the grace of God, I am who I am. I don't know if you're a tattoo fan, but if you are wondering what to get tattooed on yourself, and don't go to the place I went to in Alabama. (laughs) But that's a good one. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And His grace toward me was not in vain. It was not wasted. On the contrary, I worked harder than the rest of them, Paul says. Now, that's not an arrogant statement. It's a true one. Because none of the other guys had to make up for what Paul had to make up for. Paul was just a... He was one of the ones that made sure Jesus died. He was one of the ones that made sure Stephen died. That was his image. That was his rep. And he needed to repair it. He had a lot more work to do to build up trust. That's what he's saying. By the grace of God, I am what I am. It wasn't I, it was the grace of God that is in me. The grace is what allows all this to happen. Not the hard work, not the vision, not the personality, not the education, not the look of the building, not the budget, not the creative marketing campaigns, none of it. None of that makes a church happen. It can make an institution happen. It can make a gathering happen. But it doesn't make a church happen. Ecclesia, the gathering of God's people. Grace does that. God's grace allows that. So, if the rest of what we talk about this morning is going to make any sense, we have to look at that reality first. I brought to you as of a matter of first importance that Jesus died for my sins according to the word of the living God, that he was buried and that he was raised back to life 
according to the word of the living God. That's where we start. That's the cornerstone build upon truth. We tracking? Okay. Sorry, I sounded like Matt Chandler there. He says it all the time. We tracking? If you've ever watched Matt Chandler. If you didn't, then just forget I said that. So for the rest of what we're going to say this morning, make any sense, I just want to make sure we started there. A matter of first importance. Now you can turn with me to Luke 24. Now, if you've been here for any amount of time, you've heard this before. I make no apology for being repetitive on certain passages of Scripture. Uh, I'm just letting you know you may have heard this before. Luke 24, verses 13 through 35 is where we're going to look this morning. We're going to spend some time here. We're going to spend some time in uh, another passage, and then we're just going to talk about where we're headed for a little bit. Luke 24, 13 through 35. I went on a prayer retreat in March, the year after we got here. My idea of this prayer retreat was I was going to get my, have you ever seen the movie Hook? I was going to have my apostrophe, lightning, just struck my brain. Anyone remember that line? Okay, anyway. I was going to have this moment with God where he was going to give me the whole laid out vision of what this was going to look like. And I was going to come home from that retreat and I was going to sit down with the guys and I was going to say, here it is. Let's go get it done. So I get, I get into where I'm going. I meet with the Lord. I open my Bible. I have other resources on the bed and I'm like, I unplug every other thing, no internet, nothing. I'm just going to meet with the Lord and he's just going to, he's just going to completely overwhelm me with this plan. It's going to be amazing. And out of nowhere, for some reason, I think about this scene in a play that I was in, a, an Easter passion play, and I was in this scene uh, with a guy where we did, we acted out the road to Emmaus. I had not thought about that in years. I did an imitation of the guy I worked with, and that's what ran through my head, and I pictured my wife laughing at it, and that sent me down a rabbit trail. Again, if you know me, not uncommon. But the next thought was, why did I just think of that? And then I remember thinking, I didn't remember that story. When I got asked to be a part of this scene acting out the road to Emmaus, I remember thinking, like, what are they talking about? What is that? What is the road to Emmaus? So I decided in that, in, on that prayer retreat, I was going to look at that passage. So I had to Google it because I didn't know where it was. And I find Luke 24, 13 through 35. That is all God gave me the whole time I was away. He gave me no other information. So when I came back, all I did was tell people. They knew I was there. And I said, listen, I don't know. I don't know what we're going to do. I don't know how we're going to do it. What I do know is I think God has an answer for us in Luke 24, 13 through 35. So read it often. And when something comes to mind or God shows you something from it, tell me about it. Let's collectively work this out. God didn't give me anything singularly, so let's do it together. Let me read this to you. Luke 24, starting at verse 13. That very day, meaning the day that Jesus rose from the grave, that very day, two of them, followers of Jesus, were going to a village named Emmaus about seven miles from Jerusalem, and they were talking with each other about all these things that had happened while they were talking and discussing together Jesus himself drew near and went with them 
but their eyes were kept from recognizing him. And he said to them, what is this conversation that you're holding with each other as you walk? And they stood still, looking sad. Then one of them, named Cleopas, answered him, Are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these days? And he said to them, What things? And they said to him, Concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet, mighty in deed and word before God and all the people, and how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and besides all this, it is now the third day since these things happened. Moreover, some women of our company amazed us. They were at the tomb early in the morning, and when they did not find his body, they came back saying that they had even seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women said, but him they did not see. He said to them, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. So they drew near to the village to which they were going. He acted as if he were going further, but they urged him strongly, saying, Stay with us. For it's toward evening, and the day is now far spent. So he went in to stay with them. When he was at table with them, he took the bread and blessed it and broke it and gave it to them. And their eyes were opened, and they recognized him, and he vanished from their sight. They said to each other, Did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road, while he opened to us the scriptures? And they rose that same hour and returned to Jerusalem, and they found the eleven and those who were with them gathered gathered together, saying, The Lord has risen indeed and has appeared to Simon. Then they told what had happened on the road and how he was known to them in the breaking of bread. I find this to be one of the greatest moments of Jesus' discipleship process. Now, there are a lot we didn't see, but this is one we get a really good zoomed-in glance. I can almost smell it. I can almost see it. I can feel the dirt crunching beneath their feet as they're walking. I've spent so much time in this passage, I'm surprised I don't have it all memorized yet. I love it. And it defines who we are as a church. That's where the name comes from, by the way, Journey Church. Because we realize that everybody is going somewhere. And what Jesus does is he comes alongside them on their road at their pace where they're going. And he asks them a question. He doesn't stand on the other side of the road and say, Hey, I'm Jesus. Come where I am. Hey, you. Have doubts. The best place you can get that is to stop going where you're going, stop living your life how you're living it, clean yourself up, and come over and meet with me. That struck out to me. That's how Jesus did it. He didn't invite them to a building or to be a part of an institution. He just walked where they were going. Jesus had no business going to Emmaus. He just went for a seven-mile walk to a place he didn't need to go at around dinner time. Why? It was because of these two. 
This is part of Jesus' victory lap, right? He is meeting with people literally moments after breath has filled his lungs. And he takes the time to walk with these two doubters seven miles in a town he doesn't need to go to. Why? Because that's where they're going. And he walks at their pace, and then he asks them a question. He says, what are you guys talking about? And that's whenever Jesus does something remarkable, and this is where we all need to learn, probably exceptionally me, he gets real quiet, and he just starts to listen. He says, what are you guys talking about? And they look at him like he's crazy. Are you the only person in Jerusalem who has no idea what's happened here? Like, think about this, sir. There's been an earthquake. Everything's been dark. You don't know? All right, well, this Jesus that we followed, that we were followers of, we believed he was the Messiah, and now he's dead. And now people say that his body's not in the grave. We are so confused. We are so disillusioned. We're just going to go home. I don't know what to do. And we can't find any answers, and it's confusing, and it's hard, and I can't believe you don't know anything about this. And Jesus says, now, it, sound, it can sound harsh where he says, oh, foolish ones and slow of heart. Remember, these are followers of Jesus. He knows them. He knows them. They are, for some reason, in God's infinite wisdom and grace, not allowed to recognize who Jesus is in this moment because the aha moment hadn't happened yet. The burning within their hearts hadn't happened yet. Now, God knew that. So Jesus says, you have all the information you need to know the truth. Your heart's just slow to understand it. And then, starting with Moses and all the prophets, he opens up God's Word. Now, he, he is the Word, John 1. Jesus is the embodiment of God's Word, so he doesn't have a Bible with him. He doesn't have a Gideon New Testament that he stole out of the nightstand. Starting with Moses and all the prophets, this is what Jesus does. He teaches them all the things concerning himself. He reminds these two that Jesus has always been the main character in the story that God has been weaving in our lives. They get to the house. Jesus does the whole coy thing. Like, no, I'm good. I'm just going to keep walking. And they're like, no, you have to come in and eat. Now I bet, okay. <laughs> so he goes in, he sits at the table, and he breaks the bread. And when he does, something happens. They recognize who he is, and he's gone. In an instant, gone. The next place we see him, by the way, is standing in a room where he just kind of went through a locked door to reveal himself to the disciples. So it's pretty cool because we see where he teleported to. It's like a quantum leap. He went from the room with these two at the table to into the room with the disciples. And it's, they say something interesting. They say, did our hearts not burn within us while he talked to us on the road as he opened the scriptures to us? Jesus is teaching a master class on doing something he's going to command in just a few short days. He's going to command of all believers in him to do. 
He's teaching a master class on how to do it right here. And that, that task is making disciples. He's teaching a master class on how to do it. So I'm going to give you real brief how we do it, how we get that from here. It's this. We walk with people at their pace, where they're going, and we ask questions. We're willing to enter into people's lives at their pace and to do what they're doing and do it how they're doing it. That's what Jesus did. We ask questions, and when people cast doubt, we listen. And when given the opportunity to speak, we will do everything in our power to reorient people around the word of the living God, allowing people to see the joy and the good news that every bit of it, every little tiny scribble in the word of God has always been about Jesus. We will use every bit of our energy to get people to understand that. Not in a preachy, slam the Bible down on the table and point to the sin that they're doing. But when they have questions... Here's where we find our answers. And when we earn enough relational chips for someone to trust us enough to ask those questions, we will give them the answers, just like Jesus did. We'll go into their homes and we'll have meals with them, just like Jesus did. And we'll invite them in ours. And we'll break bread together. And we will rejoice because the thing that changed their whole demeanor is they realized they had spent time with Jesus and then they illogically get up and run seven miles back to where they just couldn't wait to get out of. Heads hung low walking out of Jerusalem, out of breath sprint back. Why? Because they had just spent time with Jesus. And he's alive. And we're going to tell anybody that cares to listen. And they bust into that room and they're out of breath and they're holding their knees and they just can't believe what they're about to tell people. And that is what we get to witness when we do this, folks. When we interact with our neighbors and our friends and our family and we help them see the connection point in God's word, God's spirit comes into those people, into us, and the heart burning within us is the mind's knowledge connecting with the heart's knowledge, and it creates a burning sensation, and all of a sudden, people's desired destination and behavior changes. Why? Not because they spent time with us, not because they went to Journey Church, not because they attended an event we put on. No, because they just spent time with a very real Jesus. It's a great formula, isn't it? It's a wonderful formula. But now what? Now what? Well, Jesus is going to answer that question to the same disciples, to the same people. Jesus is alive, but he's not going to stay. He keeps telling him this. Now, the disciples at the time are not the greatest at understanding what Jesus is saying and just wholeheartedly believing it. They nod their heads, and in their excitement now, they can't comprehend what he's saying because he keeps saying this thing to them along the lines of, it would be better for you for me to leave. <laughs> what? You did leave. You remember? We thought you were dead. You know why we thought you were dead? Because you were. You were dead. <laughs> and now you're saying that it's better for us for you to leave? 
So he does. He leaves. But he doesn't leave without some instruction. He tells them what to do. He tells them something interesting. You've been in the church for probably more than two times. You may have heard this already. It's in Matthew 28, verses 18 to 20. It is known as the Great Yeah, it's known as the Great Commission. Jesus' last charge to the followers. Now listen to what he says here. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. And that's the first time that Jesus has really been this brazen with that language. He had the opportunity in front of Pilate, and he came real close to this kind of language. Because he looks at Pilate, and Pilate looks at him all arrogant, and he says, you, Do you realize I have the power to put you to death? And Jesus looks at him and says, You would have no power at all if it wasn't given to you by my Father. I love it. Now Jesus is full on owning it in front of everybody. He's okay with everybody knowing it. The manifest glory of God has been displayed in the resurrection of Jesus. He is not hiding it from anyone anymore. He says, all authority in heaven and on earth. You cannot find a stretch of land anywhere on this planet or on any other planet or in any galaxy that I don't exercise complete and supreme authority over it. So pay attention. Pay attention. Go. I have the authority. You'll never find an authority bigger than this one. So this trumps every other objective you'll ever have in your life. This trumps all of them. No matter what objective you have in front of you, no matter what goal you have in front of you, what Jesus is saying is you will never sit under an authority that is bigger than me ever. So your life's mission is about to be told to you, followers of Yahweh. Go. Therefore, go. What's the therefore? Well, it's because all authority in heaven and earth has been given to Jesus. You already have your, barch, your, your marching orders, or marching orders, wherever those are. You already have those. These are your orders. They supersede any other directive. These are your orders. Go and make disciples of all nations baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. It's shortly after this that they are told that they can wait until they receive, spirit of, until they receive power from on high. And that's what they do. They wait. And Pentecost happens in Acts 2, which is also another favorite here. Which Don't worry, we'll get there. If you've taken time to read the small but very substantial book you got for Father's Day, guys, it's called Before You Open Your Bible. I left it on my seat. Meg, can you hold it up? I meant to bring it up with me. If you forgot you got that for Father's Day, forget no longer. 
If anyone in this room would like to have a copy, I will buy you one. I'll give you whatever I have left. I have a few left here. But you should read this book, and you should do it as soon as possible. The Eagles aren't on today. Phillies aren't on today. Union's not on today. I don't think the Flyers are on today. There we go. They were the one bright spot, right? Are the Sixers on today, Devin? Then it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. The TV doesn't even need to be turned on today. So read this book. It'll take you about 40 minutes. In this book, there's something that he reminds the reader of. He, it's something in the Great Commission that really got my attention, his perspective on something, because we can tend to focus on the part where Jesus has all the authority to say this, and that's a good thing to fixate on. We can also tend to focus on the, the go part, and that's a good thing to focus on. And we can focus on the making converts and baptizing people in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. And that is a good part to be focused on. But there's a part in the Great Commission that I have found myself to not completely digest before I read that book. I want to I want to clearly define for you what Jesus's expectation is for you. If you are in this room and you believe yourself to be a follower of Jesus, the word Christian has lost almost all its true meaning in our society, so I don't like to use it anymore. If you consider yourself to be a follower of Jesus in this room today, if you have found redemption in the person of Jesus, the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, the power of the Holy Spirit has indwelled you, and you have a destiny with the Father in heaven because your sins have been forgiven through the blood of Jesus. And you are a follower of Jesus. If that's you in this place today, I want to tell you very clearly what Jesus' main and primary expectation for you is. Because I kind of lost sight of this. I want to look at the first part of verse, first part of verse 20 again. He says this, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. Church, the expectation of a follower of Jesus is that we are following Jesus. That's the expectation. You can't teach what you don't know. You can't duplicate what you don't own. You can't reproduce in others what you have not owned yourself. I can't either. Here's a sad reality, church. I could come up here every week. I could find something uh, to say that's in this book, and I could preach it, and I could demand that of you and not live it myself at all. I could hide. I could be a liar. And I'll stand before God, and I'll answer for that. But you will sit under a liar every week if that's who I choose to be. I can pretend to be a follower of Jesus, and I can do it really, really well. I'm sure the rest of you can too, right? I mean, let's just be honest. Some of us maybe deserve an Academy Award for the amount of acting we're doing. And you hear. So the expectation that Jesus thrusts upon us is that you need to have something to duplicate into the world that needs Jesus. And the only thing Jesus gave you to give others is himself. Not your talents, not your abilities, not your money, not your last name. 
not your education, not your history. Those are all tools, sure. But no, the only thing he gave you and I to give to a world that desperately needs him is himself. That's what he deposited in us. So he says, go into all the world and make disciples and baptize them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit and teach them to obey all that I have commanded you. Every year, around daylight savings time, twice a year, I get made fun of relentlessly by my wife. And rightfully so. She's not wrong. My brain cannot comprehend daylight savings time. It just cannot. No matter how it is explained, I can say, so tomorrow, if people don't change their clocks, they're going to be late for church. And she's like, no, they'll be early for church. No, they'll be late. And then she explains it, and I'm like, oh, that makes sense. You'll have to explain it again in six months. Here's why I say this. You don't want me teaching a class on daylight savings time. Maybe it would be entertaining, but it would be chock full of misinformation. You can't teach what you don't know, church. The world needs Jesus. And the only reason this world right here needs Journey Church is because Jesus lives here. If Jesus didn't live here, they don't need it. As comfortable as these seats are and as beautiful as our carpet is, <laughs> the world needs Jesus. And if Jesus doesn't live here, they don't need this. If Jesus does live here, then they need this. And we can be used. We can do some good stuff in a community that needs us. But they only need us because we have Jesus. Does that make sense? Listen, church, that should simplify it. That should really cut through all the fog and all the stuff and all the junk that the church has identified itself with in this country for far too long. We only have one thing to do. One. But Jesus isn't just going to leave us stranded on the top of a mountain being told to go and teach and, and travel and teach people to obey. No, he says something in John 13, 34, and 35 that is of vital importance for us to understand this. He says this. He says, a new commandment I give to you. Now, when Jesus is in the room and he says those words, don't you think your ears are going to perk up? There hasn't been a new commandment in literally thousands of years. The last time God gave a new commandment, Moses was holding stone while the hand of God was scribbling it in. So when the Son of God is in a room with you and He says, a new command I give to you, don't you think the hush falls over the crowd while you are waiting with bated breath about what this new command could be? It's number 11, folks. Get the tablets out. This is going to be huge. And Jesus says this. Are you ready for this bomb drop? He says this. He says, love one another. Bum, 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 bum. That's not new. And Jesus says, no, wait. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. 
You can't love people if you don't know Jesus. Not like that. You can show love to people. You can be kind to people. But if you don't know Jesus, you don't know how to love people like Jesus. You'll get just super annoyed. You'll find a a pack of people that you like. You will create an ecosystem for yourself where you shelter your kids from the world, where you shelter yourselves from the world, where you keep every bad thing out because that's what good Christians do. And you will put helmets on and you will stay in your ecosystem and you will do all the right things because that's what good Christians do. But that is potentially a gathering of people inside of a bubble who don't know Jesus. Talk about him a lot. They claim him a lot. But they might not know him. Because Jesus didn't do that. Jesus went way outside the bounds of ecosystems. Jesus went way outside the bounds of traditional Christianity and Christian values. He sat with prostitutes. Matter of fact, he put his arm around them, prayed with them. He had meals with tax collectors. He found the worst in society, and he said, those are my people. And the religious elites hated him for it because they wanted to have meals with him. They wanted to throw banquets. He was drawing a crowd. They didn't like that he was drawing a crowd, but they weren't invited. He wouldn't come to their feasts. He'd go to the alleys. Or they would makeshift, put some food together. He'd have a meal with them. And he'd confront their sin. And he would love them and he would walk with them through it. And he'd say, I'm not condemning you. I love you. Your sin's been forgiven. Now stop doing it. You know it's bad. You know it's not good for you or anyone around you, so just don't do it anymore. You have been loved by the Father. So don't act like that anymore. Don't live like that. I mean, that's how Jesus interacted with the worst. A new command I give you. Love one another. Just as I have loved you. You want to know how to love people? You want to know how to make disciples? Church, you got to know Jesus. And the only way you can know Jesus right now at the level of which you need to know him is to know his word. According to the scriptures. So that's who we are. And that's what we're about, unapologetically. That means that Jesus' understanding of this work was that the bulk of it happened outside of these walls. There are 168 hours in a week. You might spend two of them here, right? Depending on how long-winded the pastor gets. So Jesus' obvious expectations of his followers is that they will focus their lives on making disciples. Jesus doesn't say that we have to use our church attendance to make disciples. The expectation is that it is our life, 168 hours a week, not two. He tells us to make disciples, and that is what our life's mission is. Every ounce of strength We've got every dollar in the bank account, every minute on our calendar is leveraged for the goal and the end game of making disciples. Where I work, make disciples. Who lives in my house, make disciples. Who I'm in clubs and hobbies with, make disciples. Who I'm sitting in the tree stand with, make disciples. 
I will leverage it all to make disciples. Why? Because God gave me 168 hours in a week. And all of it needs to be devoted to making disciples, not just two hours a week. So how can we better help each other make that happen? How can we equip and train each other in ways to do this? Well, that's why, unapologetically, everything we do on a rotating basis is intentionally getting us into the Word of God. There will be fun events planned for the church just to gather every once in a while, but for the most part, everything we do is unapologetically teaching one another, ourselves, God's Word. Why? Because we want to know the heart of Jesus. We want to know Jesus because the more we know Jesus, the more we will know how to love our neighbors. The more we know how to love our neighbors, the more we'll see their hearts burn within them as we talk about Him on the road while we walk. You come to Armor, there might be donuts. I make a vow to you that you'll never have crappy coffee in this church as long as I'm the pastor. It might, it, I will do everything in my power to keep it from being served in a styrofoam cup. It's very important to me. There will be times of laughter and times of fellowship and times to just gather and we will enjoy meals together or we will have a barbecue event or we will have a Christmas gathering. Those things are really anomalies, though. Because every opportunity we have, we want to intentionally, as a church, equip one another in the Word of God. Life groups, community groups, in God's Word. The kids. Do you know our journey kids go through the Bible from beginning to end every three years? There's not one fabric of the Word of God that they don't go through in a three-year span. We're on our third round right now. So as a kid goes through Journey Kids, they cycle through the whole entire Word of God while they're here. If you're not talking to our kids about what they're learning in Journey Kids, I'm telling you unequivocally, you're the one missing out. Ask them. The nursery isn't just holding babies. They're praying for the kids. They're teaching them truth best they can at the level that they can understand it. Adorn, armor, our time in prayer on Wednesdays, our community groups, our Sunday gatherings, everything we do, we intentionally open the Word. And that's how you dare, can, dare I say, should join into those works. Now, I don't make a hard push for you to get involved in that stuff to give you a guilt trip to say if you're a good Christian, you'll do that. I tell you that because there is no downside to studying the Word with people in this room, in a living room, in a community group. There's no downside. If you're not doing it, you're missing out. And it's not because we have this beautiful website where we brag about how well-attended all our stuff is. It's because it helps all of us in the trench together know Jesus, know how to love people, and then walk with them along the road to have the moment where we open our mouths and we teach them all the things from Moses and all the prophets concerning Jesus. And then their hearts burn within them and their desired destination changes. And we get to witness the whole thing. Church, if you're not attending this other stuff, you're the one missing out.
Church is not Sunday morning. It is 168 hours a week. Everything we do is leveraged to make us better at loving our neighbors and seeing them to come to know Jesus. So every opportunity we put out there is for you to get plugged in. Whatever color code is top priority on your calendar, Journey Church should get it. And I say that unapologetically. And it's not a guilt trip, and that's not legalism. It's because we are better when we do this together. And we can't get it done when we only do it on Sundays. So how can you pray? How can you get involved? Well, I just told you all those other things. You can get involved in any of that stuff. And we'd be glad to tell you about it. We're growing. Sometimes it's hard to find a seat in here. And that's an awesome thing. We want to be able to have that space available for overflow and available for potential growth. So we just signed a lease for the first office space down the hall. And that on the 15th will become occupied by us. And that'll be the older kids classroom. So starting on the 20th, the older kids will be back there. And all of our, all of our kids stuff will happen down that hallway. That'll open up this space over here to be an overflow room for now. But one of the things that we prayed about, if you were here in January, we had a family meeting. We asked you to pray. We thought that maybe this was our last lease that we signed at this property. We plotted people, everybody that calls Journey Church their church, we plotted their name into a, into a program and we found a center point. And that center point was right around Hatboro. So we thought maybe God is asking us to move, but the reality is anytime you move, you could potentially lose people because you're geographically changing your boundary lines. And there's a lot that goes into that. And we were praying and God, do something. God, show us what you're doing. And our building sold. We got a new landlord. So we kind of held our breath wondering, What's his plan for the building? And then his question was this, what can I do to get you to sign a long-term lease? And I jokingly said, get me 150 seats. And he was standing in the middle of the floor when I said it. And he went like this. Yeah, I think I could do that. And that made me get back in and plot the names of people that call Journey Church their church into that same program because I felt like God wasn't doing anything, right? God wasn't revealing himself yet. And I plotted in all the addresses again, all the people that have come to Journey Church since January, all the people that call this church their church. And wouldn't you know it, the center point had shifted to about 300 yards up the road. So those of you that are coming from Doylestown and Dublin, thank you. <laughs> so there's potential right now for our landlord to be willing to bust out every wall, my office, the, the room, the lobby, and we would turn sideways. And we would look that way and have 150 seats, and we would use the extra space back here for an office. Maybe God's doing that. We don't know. But the landlord's willing to do it, and we're willing to entertain it with him. So you can pray about that, because this just might be our long-term home. I would ask you to pray for collective wisdom and for collective wealth in the body to get what God wants done, done. I challenge you to give to the church. 
If you haven't done that yet, I challenge you to talk to David Clapper and he can help you figure out how to navigate the online giving portal. That's not a plea for money. It's not yours anyway. It's God's money. But I do tell you unapologetically that the people who handle the money in this church can be trusted with it. I don't see your money. I don't have any idea what you give. I just know that we're better when we even give together. I would ask you to pray for wisdom for the leadership as we navigate what that looks like, as we try to get some some costs together. What would that cost us? What would that cost him? And pray for Roy. R-U-I. Write that down. That's our landlord's name. And he doesn't know Jesus yet, but he wants a church on his property. But he's going to know Jesus. There's a lot more I could say, church, but that's who we are. That's how we got here. And I don't know for sure what tomorrow looks like or the days ahead. What I do know is if we can keep focused on the word of God, the love of Jesus, there's no downside to that. Now, Jesus did promise us that in this world, we will have trouble. And take heart. I have overcome the world. Jesus has this under control. It's not going to be easy. There's going to be hard times. There have been. There's going to be in the future. But I think we can weather that together too. Our li- if our lives are defined by being crucified with Christ, as Paul says, then just imagine what happens when a group of people who view their lives that way actually come together and live that way together. Just imagine what happens if the church is the church. You want to know what that looks like? You should pick up your Bible and read Acts 2, 42-47. That's what happens when a group of people know who they are, know whose they are, and know what they're about. Would you stand? We're going to pray. I'm going to invite the worship team to come back up. And we're going to sing that song to close out our time together. Life defined. All I am, my life defined by I've been crucified with Christ. The life I live, I live by faith. And Jesus Christ who lives in me. Church, it's a joy to be able to do this together. It's a joy. So let's do it together. God, thank you for who you are and what that makes us, your kids. And we're proud of our dad. We're proud to be in this family. We have been raised with Christ into new life. We've been crucified with Him. The life I live, I live by faith. I am a new creation. I am new. I am made new. I am not the person I was before I met Jesus. I have been clothed in His robes and I am made new. And God, our life is defined by that mission. So may that be true in our hearts. May we leave today excited about what lies ahead and give us wisdom to figure this out together because we do want to trust you. 
all we are, our lives defined by we've been crucified with Christ. In your name we pray these things. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen.